This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, as we take a little hiatus from the studio, we begin a special series of summer shows from the Aspen Ideas Festival against the glorious backdrop of Ajax Mountain in Aspen, Colorado. How then to describe the Aspen Ideas Festival if you couldn't be there? Start with something akin to a bucolic liberal arts college campus, but ring it with the high peaks of the Rocky Mountains, and then add in a full-day participatory class schedule of the world's best teachers, ideas from all sides, and round it out with a town like Aspen, with more food and fun than a few days can possibly allow. I came to the festival with my microphone in my backpack, and between an amazing series of lectures and discussions, managed to pull aside some of the speakers and attendees for some unique polyoptics bilaterals. On this show, John Skipper, the president of ESPN, the world's preeminent sports entertainment platform, and Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the new book, Foreign Policy Begins at Home, The Case for Putting America's House in Order. As always, when we take the mic with us out into the field, please forgive the occasional ambient noise you'll hear in the background and the not-quite-studio-quality sound. We begin with John Skipper, a towering guy whose company towers over much of the media world. Its revenues represent a substantial chunk of the earnings of the Walt Disney Company, and I've long thought that coverage of politics could learn a lot from the coverage of sports. Let's face it, much of politics is a contact sport, and we might as well lean in. Here's our conversation with John. Okay, we're with John Skipper, uh, president of ESPN. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for spending a little time at the Aspen Institute uh, talking with polyoptics. Well, thank you for having me, Josh. Um, in our conversation today, touched on a lot of things. I think the first thing I'd like to talk about is, uh, you know, you have over your long career sort of figured out how to cover sports, how to tell sports stories. Mm-hmm. I talk all the time with anchor people, print reporters, people who are covering the political beat all the time. I get frustrated with sort of the the extreme conversation that we have about mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. What can coverage of politics learn from coverage of sports? Well, that's an interesting question. I may meander it around sure. a little bit and see if we come to anything. I mean, I think that it's directly because of what happens in politics these days and many other social issues in society, which are quite polarized, right? So there is very little conversation from the middle. There's lots of opinion, uh, not that much candid and frank and constructive conversation. And sports is still something people can rally around. Right, it's a it's communal experience. You can still watch the game and not worry that the guy you're getting ready to engage is going to have a dramatically different position than you are that he feels emotional about. So, I mean, maybe uh, that communal experience would be good to get that back in politics in a way, right? Some right. sense of common commonality, some sense of common good. Um, so I don't really know. I, I can't tell you that I'm encouraged that politics will learn that from sports, except that. To cover it as a television event, 
Uh, it's not just a head-on camera and a single cuts camera. You bring in jib cranes. You bring right. in as many cameras, as much production technology back in the truck as you possibly can muster. Right. So you cover it as a piece of entertainment, mm. right. which I don't. I think politicians take themselves a little too seriously. Right. The other thing I love, and I've read him for a long time, is Paul Lucas mm -hmm. covering the arcana of mm -hmm. sports, uh, right. sports with his uni watch and his ESPN. Right. Right. How do, what does Paul bring to sports? Well, he, he brings a fresh perspective and he brings fun to it, right? right? I mean, back to sort of your discussion, I mean, sports is entertainment, it's a spectacle. What can break through, of course, are stories and storytelling or fun or, or um, social. I mean, Paul is sort of edging there into fun, a little fashion, um, a little uh, sort of au, au courant that, uh, that's a lot of fun. And, uh, and the other person and group that I spend a lot of time with these days is Bill Simmons, uh -huh. The BS Report. Welcome to The BS Report, taping this at a, a really weird hour. It's like 6.30 here on the West Coast in the studio right now. Louis C.K., how well, are you? Good, how are you? It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, thanks for having me. Were you initially supportive of what Bill was doing because of your deep literary background yourself? Well, I think, look, first of all, I think we believed in Bill. Bill came... Uh, to work for us back in the early 2000s from Boston as a sports guy, did some beautiful writing. Bill wanted to continue to grow and develop and do more things. And I can't quite remember the chronology, but about three years ago, he suggested he'd like to do a website. He'd like to think about sports beyond just the games. He'd like to, and he'd like to bring in a little culture, a little music and a little film and, and have sort of a little bit of a mashup with sports at sort of the center. And he'd like to find some great new writers and and uh, some fresh perspectives. And I think that's what we've done with Grantland. And, of course, the podcasts are a central part of it. Uh, we create a little podcast studio in Los Angeles for it because we can get lots of athletes and lots of people by the studio. And Bill's good at it because he's like talking to a fan. Right. He's, uh, uh, he's not a real... People think he's just like any other fan. He's not any other fan because his, his uh, knowledge of sports is exhaustive. He's a reader as well. It probably didn't hurt, back to your original question, that uh, I have a literary bent uh, in terms of my, what I personally enjoy. And so Bill suggested to me he wants to look for young writers and think about books and how that plays into sports is all sort of, um, uh, all sort of goes down easy with me. Uh, when David Bornstein came to you and said... Uh, I want to start ESPN a magazine. What were your first thoughts about how you translate the visual product onto the page? Yeah, remember I'd, I'd worked many years at Rolling Stones. So yep. In terms of thinking what the magazine looked like, what I thought I wanted to do was to bring that level of photography and graphic design to sports. Um, and I thought that the pre preeminent magazine for sports for many, many years has been Sports Illustrated, which was really a news weekly exercise in reporting the news, and I thought we could bring a new sort of big visual feel to it, uh, bring graphics to it. The other big size, I think, helped with that. Um, so, and, and we also, it was important also that you have a different contemplation of what a sports magazine was going to be. We were going to do a magazine to look forward because that was the digital, you know, it was the dawn of the digital age, 1998. Yeah. But I think we understood already that the news cycle was gone. You could no longer get a magazine on Wednesday that told you what happened on Sunday. ESPN messed that up. I didn't, that was before I got there. But ESPN told you the news. They showed the highlight. Uh, 
so that you didn't need to see it again on Wednesday. It, had SI been doing the full-page bleeds the way the Mac, ESPN the magazine did, the four or five pictures that really brought you onto center court the way they do now? See, the early, the, we, we thought early on about the idea of doing three big spreads at the front of the They're magazine, amazing. and, and uh, oddly enough, that, that same concept showed up in Sports mm-hmm. Illustrated very similar to the same time. But I can't find too much fault with that. You know, we were we were stealing ideas from Rolling Stone, from Sports, the old Sports Illustrated. We were stealing ideas from newspapers. You know, I shouldn't say stealing. We were adapting. We were extending. So that's it's part of the part of the business. Well, I mean, and to to see how this has gone, I was. Uh, coming out of my apartment on Jones Street in Greenwich Village a couple months ago, uh-huh. and I'm seeing this photo crew set up. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing with Jimmy Johnson and his wife is replicating yep. the exact setup of Bob Dylan on the cover of one yep. of his early iconic albums. Absolutely. It was, uh, shoot, I can't remember, it's his second album. Yeah. And he's got his girlfriend at the time, whose name I can't remember. Fre- the Freewheeling Bob Dylan. Freewheeling, the Freewheeling Bob Dylan. And his girlfriend's name was Susie, I believe. Yeah. And it's the iconic shot of him. Just sort of hunched over with that great haircut, Susie in his shoulder. Yeah, like down that. in the village. So, which, by the way, is where Jimmy Jimmy Johnson lives in the city. And, and I live right. I, I looked yeah. right on the shoot from my from my ground floor window. So that's going to be my Christmas card. My eight year old uh, and my five year old are going to okay. replicate Jimmy Johnson and replicating Bob Dylan. So from those early days, 1997, you are a Disney publishing guy. Uh, you're creating the, the magazine for mm-hmm. ESPN. Uh, how did you? make the transition into I I know how to make all these rights deals, I know how to cover all these live events, I know how to create uh, new channels and new platforms, eventually creating, as we said this morning, a movement from an idea that you're watching ESPN, a television network, to mm-hmm. a, vid- to a mm-hmm. video platform. Well, the progression was from the magazine to ESPN.com and, and working on uh, the website and mobile and then uh, getting some responsibility for television. I couldn't have, I didn't have a vision. I didn't know how to do it. The um, There were lots and lots of very skilled people at ESPN who understood how to do that. So my role was to sort of think about big picture. What is the overall vision of the company going to be? How are we going to manage this cross-platform content? Um, so, but it wasn't about how to, you know, those guys can't learn anything from me. I can learn a lot from them. We got an awful lot of good people who've been at ESPN for years and years, and and ESPN has been the home of most of the technological innovations that are in sports these days. Whether it be the first and ten line, or cameras behind the behind the catcher, or you know the graphic packages that we do now. So. Those guys really do it, not me. For Red Sox fans, it was tough waking up every morning knowing that they always expected something to go wrong. Four days in October isn't just about the 2004 ALCS come from behind win by the Boston Red Sox. It's about a transformation, uh, a transformation of their fan base from the lovable losers and downtrodden fans, Red Sox Nation, to all of a sudden, within four days, winners. Where did 30 for 30 come from? 30 for 30 came from, interestingly enough, uh, a uh, meeting in a uh, hotel room at the Ritz-Carlton down in the Battery in New York City where we were trying to think about what to do uh, for the 30th anniversary of ESPN. And we decided we did not want to do a retrospective of the last 30 years or 30 years of what happened to ESPN, but that we'd give our fans a gift. And that gift would be 30 films for our 30th anniversary that would be about 
things that had happened in those 30 years that resonated emotionally, that mattered, and that we would find filmmakers who had something they really deeply cared about. Uh, one of the early ones that we signed up was Barry Levinson, uh, of course, the great movie director uh, who's from Baltimore, who was a Colts fan and wanted to tell the story of the Colts in Baltimore and their leaving and what it meant to the city through the marching band, which never disbanded. 1983 was a very bad year for Baltimore Colt fans. We hear rumors that the Colts are moving. We hear they're going to Indianapolis, they're going to Phoenix, and uh, everybody was really heartbroken. Finally, January 20th, 1984, it came to a head at the Baltimore-Washington airport. I'm encouraged. I really am. Uh, William Donald Schaefer, who was mayor of Baltimore, called a press conference. Mr. Ursay Percy was coming into town to address these rumors. When Mr. Ursay arrived, he had even trouble getting into the door. And I will say Mr. Ursay was intoxicated. At that time, I was working for WMAR-TV as a studio tech. And all three stations, WJZ, WBAL, and WMAR, went out set up live to go in the air for Mr. Ursay's press conference. Mr. Ursay got up there and started with some very, very salty language. Never went out of business. They went to Memorial Stadium every Sunday, even when they're playing in Indianapolis and played, uh, played music. So that's kind of what we want to do. It's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful run with those documentaries with lots and lots of uh, smart, smart, creative people involved. There's something mythical about everything that he did. There goes Bo, and nobody catches Bo. He may not stop yet to it was like a, you know, a rocket ship that was fired out of a cannon. He was excitement incarnate. He was untouchable. Bo was just better than everybody else. All we saw was a man doing things that we had no idea were humanly possible. Then out of nowhere, he was gone. I love the Bo Jackson story. That yeah. was amazing. Well, it's we we now are up, of course, for thirty thirty eight for thirty. <laughs> well, no, we're up to about seventy five. Oh God! Uh, and there's no really no intention to stop. I mean, at this point, what we want to continue to do is produce great documentaries about seminal moments in sports. Bo Jackson being a good example. I have a relationship in a different context with Jim Miller. Uh, mm -hmm. Asked him the other day, what does? And I lived in Hartford for many uh -huh. years. Uh, my I had neighbors who. Uh, 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 talent on your on your network, but what has living in uh, and working in Bristol allowed the network to do? Look, I don't think the network would be the company would be what it is without having started and staying in Bristol. It is a real grounding experience um, to be up in Bristol, Connecticut, relative to connecting with fans and feeling like it's just a group of fans talking to fans. It's hard to get to highfalutin. In Bristol, you're kind of in the middle of rolling countryside in Connecticut. It's lovely. And there's not a lot of other things to do. you got to stay at work and think about other things. The, the finest restaurant in Bristol, Connecticut is the cafeteria on the ESPN campus. So, yeah, that, that helps as well. I mean, early on, there were, you know, issues around recruiting, particularly certain kinds of expertise. But now... Uh, there are enough people who want to work at ESPN uh, that we can get people to Bristol, Connecticut. Part of what you're talking about here at the Aspen Institute is about thought leadership and management and how that can be applied to other companies. What are some of the other great lessons of, 
of building ESPN that are applied to other businesses and, and organizations? Look, I think that um, some of the defining characteristics that create ESPN success, I mean, it is that grounding we were just talking about and Bristol being important about that. It's, it's a little bit of simple mission. We serve sports fans, and that's sort of a rallying cry that allows people to understand what they're doing. We're a fast-moving company. We make decisions quickly. We adopt new technology. We're not. We, we have a risk-taking culture. Um, I don't think we ever think of ourselves as the as the um, incumbent. We think of ourselves still as insurgents, and I think that's important to continue to. That'll adapt serve you well as, as your competition comes on the horizon. Uh, we I, we've always had competition, but you're right. We're uh, after uh, uh, many 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 years of. Other folks not being sure that doing a 24-7 cable network was a good idea. Many people suddenly think it was a good idea. That it is a good idea. It is a good idea. We'll see how they do. Uh, we, we welcome competition. I uh, think it likely makes us better. I know you, we got to get to your event, but uh, last question. You know, and we will cut, when I get back into the studio, some of the iconic commercials into uh, our conversation. But c- making commercials for yourself to build your audience, killing it with humor... Uh, making, bringing these great athletes down several pegs and your own talent down many mm-hmm. pegs. How did this come to pass, and what are some of your favorite memories? Um, look, I, I've had the great experience now of working on the two most iconic, potentially two most iconic media campaigns of all time. At Rolling Stone, I was there for Perception Reality, and at ESPN, uh, this is Sports Center. We are now up to a, a little bit over 400 commercials by the way which is a sign of a good campaign that it is sustainable and continues on and the point of those is to make people think bristol connecticut is the center of the sports universe there's great irony because when we first did it it wasn't the center of sports universe we had to get people up there it is now every day there are coaches and players and ex-players and it is the center of the sports universe right now and your, some of your favorites that come to mind that we'll, that we'll put I, on Let People I, Play? I, I always cite, and I don't know why, but when people ask my favorite, I have never seen the one with Charlie Steiner uh, hiding under a desk and a Fander Holyfield walking through the halls going, come and get your whooping, Charlie, uh, without laughing. It can get competitive here at SportsCenter. So Charlie says you're maybe the 50th best heavyweight. In the world? In Georgia. But when there are differences, we keep it in the family. Oh, yeah, and Steve Levy sits over here. He's the one who called you pukeable. Hey, Jeff, don't forget your stick. And keeping it in the family has made our family stronger. Charlie, come on out and get your whooping. Charlie, come on out. Stand her. So that's, uh, that's a favorite. I, I love the ones that, that, as you say, are self-deprecating and, and funny and, and uh, whimsical. People ask me all the time, how do you decide which anchors work together? And to be honest, it's an awkward process. Dear Larry, want to do the sports together? If yes, check this box. Charlie? Ultimately, you're looking for a good relationship. Um, if you're not doing anything later tonight, uh, would you want to do a show with me? Whoever said all's fair in love and war was probably a broadcaster. We'll be back with more Sports Center in just a moment. I don't even know who you are anymore. Last question. Um, wife and I on Jones Street, Greenwich Village, looking for something to watch the other night. I've got a lot of friends at Discovery, too. Uh, I, I tune in to see uh, uh, 
NBC partnering with Discovery, the Nick Valenda walk across the uh-huh. canyon near Grand Canyon. I'm thinking back to the 70s and Evil Knievel. Uh-huh. Is this what? Do you, what was your view of that as a television event? And does something like that have a home on ESPN or or any of the platforms? The uh, they they had pretty good success with it. I know it led the week on cable. Twenty something million. We, or? we we've done some of that. Remember, we had a show called New Year's Eve No Limits where we had guys, uh, you know jumping motorcycles and, and flipping cars. We don't have any upcoming plans for that. I mean, we have generally gotten to sort of pretty core sports and, and trying not to sort of be stunty uh, with that. So I don't think you'll see anybody walking across Niagara Falls on ESPN. Well, I, as I think about this weekend, end of June, I don't see any championships on the calendar. I don't see a lot of live sports. If you had to come to Aspen, Colorado to participate with a bunch of wonky, wonky people talking about uh, the, the future of television, this is probably the weekend for you to well, come. This, one thing is the sports calendar no longer has any real holes in it. It's busy all the time. And and what does Bill say about my Celtics and what the future is without, without, a, without a new coach, the big three gone, and and uh, Danny have to rebuilding a whole uh, team? Well, other than his remarks, which I'm not going to comment about, he, he and Doc have been having a little back and forth. Uh, my guess is that Bill, who is a major fan, is in a little despair right now because I don't think the Celtics are going to be competing for a championship for a couple of years. And the Patriots obviously having a very tough time the last few weeks. They're having a tough time, but the Patriots will always compete for a championship. That's a smart organization, and they will, uh, you know, I, I, I foresee Tim Tebow at the at the tight end position pretty soon. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He's got the build for it, yeah. and, and Brady can find him. And, and at least we may go into the All-Star break with the Red Sox in first place. Well, I'm happy for you. Thank you very much, We're, John Skipper. Okay, thank Appreciate you, Appreciate all your time. Appreciate it. After the break, Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the new book, Foreign Policy Begins at Home, the case for putting America's house in order. POTUS. From Washington to Wall Street, POTUS is on Sirius XM. POTUS is dynamic conversation. As I always say, uh, with uh, with a moniker like that, you know, uh, almost anybody can get elected. So. Dynamic <laughs> guests. Is the chairman of the Iowa Republican Party, Matt Strawn. Thanks for being here on the show this morning. POTUS, political talk that's unbiased and unfiltered. Sirius XM 124. Returning now to our conversations at the Aspen Ideas Festival, Richard Haas is one of those guys who, even though he earned his stripes working mostly in the administrations of Ronald Reagan and the two presidents Bush, always struck me as a reasonable centrist. A guy with a fierce intellect, but one who also, using the word he might employ, has a ripeness for compromise. If only there were more like him in Washington, hear now from Aspen our conversation with Richard Haas. So here at the Aspen Ideas Festival, day one, uh, or day one for me, having flown in from New York last night, just at a lunch uh, that in which Rita Braver was uh, interviewing Bob Barnett, who should I be sitting next to but Richard Haas and his wife, uh, and Richard, the re- author of Foreign Policy Begins at Home, and the president of the Council of Foreign Relations. So uh, lunch concluded. We are now out on the piazza and uh, looking out <laughs> on the gorgeous Aspen uh, countryside. How are you doing? Uh, it'd be hard not to be doing well. Um, a couple of days ago, you wrote in the New York Times that America is due for a respite, or America has a respite, and what best to do with it. What are you talking about? Well, absolutely. When you look out at the world, there's nothing out there, say, equivalent to Nazi Germany at mid-century. 
of the previous century. There's nothing like the challenge the United States faced from the Soviet Union for four decades in what was the Cold War. There are challenges out there, but none rises to the level of of existential, immediate, global. So what I'm saying is we have to take that into account, and we've got to adjust uh, the balance between our foreign policy and domestically, particularly because on the economic side of the house, we're growing at half our post-World War II average, and we have massive challenges from stagnating incomes for most Americans to a crumbling infrastructure to schools that don't educate. Uh, an immigration system that's simply not strategic. So this combination of a little bit of time and space in the world, plus this great need here at home, suggests to me not that we need to turn our backs on the world, but we need to adjust the balance between uh, foreign policy and domestic policy. And let me say one other thing. If you think about it, national security, which is what we're talking about, is really the net result or the, it's a coin with two sides. One is foreign policy, one is domestic policy. What I'm basically saying is in order to get the balance right in our, in our national security, we've got to slightly dial down what we do in foreign policy. We also have to do some things differently. We can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And we've got to slightly dial up what we're doing in the realm of the domestic. Um, after 10 or 11 books that were mostly focused purely on the foreign, what, what was your uh, brainstorm that said, I have to look at what's happening domestically? <laughs> I wish I could sit here and tell you it was a brainstorm, but it wasn't. It wasn't that I set out to write this book. I've written a series of books over the years thinking about, if you will, the big questions facing American foreign policy and what it is we do in the world. And I thought it was time for another one. My last book was more narrow on the Iraq and Afghan wars. Uh, and this book just sort of wrote itself. When I, when I looked out uh, at the challenges and I looked out at what I thought we needed to learn, say that uh, we had to stop trying to remake societies that t- simply weren't going to be remade in our image. And I looked at what wasn't happening in Washington. I came away simply with the conclusion that we were overreaching in what we were trying to do in the world, and we were underperforming at home. And history shows that great powers that overreach abroad and underperform at home aren't going to be great powers for long. So I wrote this book simply because for the first time in my adult life, and I've been, you know, I'm now in my early 60s, I am genuinely worried. And I, I don't think it's inevitable Uh, that we get it right. I use this quote of Churchill's, that Americans can always be counted on to do the right thing, but only after they've tried everything else. (laughs) Well, that's glib. I I love the quote. uh, Like everything Churchill says, it's hard not to love it, but it's glib. And for the first time in my adult life, I came away thinking, it's not inevitable that that we get it right. Um, the book comes in at about 157 pages for, the, for those who about. actually read it in print. Uh, what's your writing process? Did, did most of this come directly from your head, or did you need to do some thinking, some talking, some, some trial and error? The reason it's so short is I have this bias that idea books should be short. If you're writing history, if you're writing biography, I feel you've got the, uh, the right to make it long. People want the detail. Often... It's in the detail that that people come alive, that events come alive. That's how you paint. If you're writing an idea book, say what you got to say and get on with it. I don't think it's fair to to ask the reader to put in weeks and weeks of time. I wanted this book to be be consumable, if you will, in a couple of hours. And that's what I uh, set out to do. A lot was in my head, particularly on the foreign side, foreign policy side of the house. That was something I'd thought about for years. And say the dialing down in the Middle East 
the uh, thinking about doing more in Asia. That I didn't have to research. That's essentially what I live. The domestic side, I knew it instinctively that we were underperforming, but then I really needed to drill down. And I would say I learned as much in writing this book as I've learned in writing any of the books that I've done about a, 12, a dozen. Uh, it forced me to get down to a level of detail and granularity about the economy, about our schools, about uh, our roads and our bridges, about our immigration uh, process. I hope the reader learns. If the reader learns half as much as I learned, uh, then it's, it's a good deal. I learned such a ton just listening to Bruce Katz for an hour about our cities. Exactly. Uh, you know, Bruce Katz used to be on my colleague years ago when I was at Brookings. Bruce Katz is one of those people, first of all, he knows his subject dead to rights. Unbelievable. The whole area, this whole issue of metropolitan areas, not narrowly cities, not narrowly exurbs or suburbs. He knows this issue dead to rights. And he, he can talk about street names in New Orleans or street names in Detroit and neighborhoods in L.A. like nobody else, uh, like nobody else I know. And what he's got, though, is an argument. And he, to me... I don't know how you feel. You do a lot of interviews. I love to be around people who I feel are at the top of their game. You know, in sports, you'd say, you know, it's a Tiger Woods or whatever uh, in golf or LeBron James in basketball. And you feel that when you watch them, you are watching someone who is as good as it gets in their chosen uh, profession. Yo-Yo Ma, who's out here, too. Watching or listening to Yo-Yo Ma play cello, you go, thank you. Yeah, I'm lucky to be alive. So when I listen to someone like Bruce Katz, I feel I am listening to the person who knows that set of issues as well as anybody. And you, and to me, it has real consequences. One point, I'm basically arguing in my book that political dysfunctionality in Washington is a major challenge to this country's future. One of the takeaways from Bruce is, yeah, that's true, but. It's to some extent being compensated for by tremendous creativity at the state and the metropolitan level. That's an important argument. Bruce is like one of those Malcolm Gladwell 10,000-hour guys uh, or sabermetrics people who just know everything about, you know, what on-base percentage means in the greater scheme of baseball. And he's, to me, it, it just brings home a really large point. Mike Bloomberg makes the same argument. And when you think about it, Mayors and governors are responsible for getting things done. They have to run for your election on the quality of the cities, the safety, the economic growth rate. They're held accountable. They've got to work with unions, with teachers, with uh, university heads, with business heads. They don't have the luxury, if you will, of only working with a narrow subset. They've got to make their, their city or their state work. They've got to reach across the political aisle. Well, everything I have just said does not describe someone who works in Washington. In Washington, you have the the luxury of posturing. You can be pure. You can say, "I I stood strongly for my principles. So by not compromising in Washington, by not voting for a piece of legislation that may have some compromises or offsets in it, you can then go to your base and you can say, reelect me. I've done a hell of a job. You can't do that as a mayor. You can't do that as a governor. They'll throw you out of office. You've got to get things done. And listening to Bruce today really crystallized the difference, if you will, between congressional and national politics, where you're often not held accountable for what you do. You're simply held accountable for what you vote or say, as opposed to local politics, where people really want to, they're going to look at, okay, what have you done to affect the quality? of my life. Right. You know, uh, <clears throat> there are many mornings during the week, Monday through Friday, talking about dysfunction in Washington when uh, my wife 
Amy and I in Greenwich Village are watching Morning Joe and uh, ideologically don't share a lot with Scarborough or you, perhaps from your older days when you were working uh, in the first Bush, in the second Bush administration. But you ask yourself, as you guys have an intelligent, fair conversation about all issues, why can't Washington be more like the dynamic on that set? I really like that show. Uh there's nothing else like it in some ways on television. You got a range of views, but not in the old crossfire range. That was artificial. You were, they would only put you on the show if you were in this end zone or the other end zone. Right. It wasn't debate. That's not debate. That was basically a shouting match. Or you have lots of other shows that simply don't get into the news. I mean, the bigger problem in American morning television is simply the lack of, of seriousness. In other cases, it is that it's ideologically pretty narrow. This cable show does that, or this cable network does something else. What I like about Morning Joe is it does cover the news. It does it in a fun way. It's not particularly ideological. I mean, I, I'm a registered Republican, but I'm, I'm pretty centrist. Some would say to a fault. Some, right. some would say good for you. Uh, but you've got people across the spectrum on the show. It's, it's not a shouting match. Uh, I wish there were more places like it on television. And look, I know the numbers are relatively modest because it's cable, but it's doing well. Uh, and it's doing well in particular with people who are politically uh, aware and who, who, who follow these issues. I'm actually hoping that it, it, it generates spinoffs. I would love to see shows like that. Uh, where you have basically the, the structure, kind of people sitting around the table, whether it's the breakfast table or the dinner table or sitting around the living room. I don't care what the conceit is of the show, but I would like to see more of that where you have people with different specializations and different political leanings come around and a talk that hopefully is both smart and fun. Uh, I mean, I love going on there and I talk about foreign policy, but I can also weigh in on domestic. I can also say something about why the Yankees are driving yeah, me up, up, up the wall or the latest in television or movies. Uh, it's a little bit like a magazine. I mean, in that sense, you know, I'm not surprised that, that, that people like it. Thinking back to early days in uh George W. Bush's administration, you're working closely with Secretary Colin Powell. Uh, this same dynamic of being open-minded, talk about what's happening across the Potomac River at, uh, at the Pentagon. Did you feel like there was a decent dialogue in the early years of the Bush administration? Of, of 43, not at all. Yeah. From almost the get-go, I had concluded this was going to be a very rough and tough and, in the end, unsatisfying professional experience. Uh, it was... The, the, the balance in the administration was very much against, say, what I believed in. I won't, I won't speak for Powell, but pretty much what you might call more centrist Republicanism, what you might call 41ism. Yep. The, that kind Brent of Scowcroftism. Exactly. Bush, the 41, Baker. Uh, and you had, say, Secretary Powell, Rich Armitage as deputy, myself, who were clearly out of that world. And you looked around the administration, uh, the president himself, uh, Dick Cheney as vice president, Don Rumsfeld, Condi Rice, were not there. And you didn't have a process that I thought properly gave everybody their, their day in court. So the combination of simply the mathematical balance. I, I remember one day telling Powell, we walk into every meeting and we're already behind at least two and a half to one. If you have you know, the vice president, the secretary of defense, Condi Rice leaned that way. Uh, and if the president was there, it was often three and a half to one against you. I didn't think we were going to win many battles, and it's not surprising to me that in most situations, Powell was in a position of trying to sandpaper off 
some of the edges of what the majority in the administration want. But but the the day to day narrative, if you will, or substance of the of the policies were dominated by uh, people who basically had a different political philosophy. Is that sense all post nine eleven, or did you did you think did you talk to Susan and say uh, I think I'm going to get a, uh, I'm going to work with uh, G- General Powell at the State Department. We're going to be this is going to be a new day. Uh, we. We leave eight years of the Clinton on a pretty high note on foreign policy. Bin Laden is out there, but we're not really obsessed with him. There are eight months, basically, of no child left behind, compassionate conservatism, domestic president, and yet then 9-11 comes. Or did you see the seeds going before that? I wasn't smart enough to particularly foresee 9-11 or anything that specifically. Uh, but I did see the political tendency, particularly in the foreign policy debate. That's what I was focusing on, the national security debate. And I, from the get-go, I was worried. And people thought I was exaggerating it. But alas, one of the few times I was right, I, just, I could just see the trajectory of this administration. And I knew these people, and I just thought they had more horses. And I just thought that we would not be successful uh, at competing. Going way back now, what does a kid from Brooklyn do go to, going to Oberlin College? <laughs> okay, now we're really going to get the personal truth. I had trouble getting into college. I was, if I've bloomed, it was late. And I applied to about a half dozen colleges. I got rejected from Amherst twice. I uh, couldn't get into Harvard. I couldn't even get into Antioch. Uh, I got into two schools. I got into Washington University, but that meant going to St. Louis, and I wasn't excited about St. Louis. And I got waitlisted at Oberlin. And I got in there. I turned out being the last person in my class. Admitted. I didn't find out I was going there until August. And I had to start in uh, September. And I went there because a good friend of mine had gone there. And he was the captain of the soccer team. And we had played soccer together in high school. And that's why, uh, that's why this kid from Brooklyn, who was at that point growing up in Long Island, ended up in uh, the middle of Ohio. But then you made up. For, you compensated for whatever problems you had uh, uh, in undergraduate years by heading off to Oxford. I was lucky enough to get the chance to go to Oxford. I was a Rhodes. Still not quite sure how that, uh, how that all came together. I think it was basically because I had a fairly unconventional undergraduate experience. I spent a junior year abroad in the Middle East, which gave me, uh, in some ways, an advantage. Everybody else was more of a straight-A student. I had a much more varied background. I studied everything from filmmaking and music and dance and art uh, I wrote to religion. I was originally a comparative religion major, and then I went off to the Middle East. It, I just had a different background. I wrote a column for the uh, newspaper. I think the way I got it, and the funny story, I got the chance, was simply I was different. And they saw me as maybe having some potential. I don't know. Oxford was a, as luxurious an intellectual experience as you can have. There I was studying all the history I never really got a chance to study. I worked with phenomenal people. Plus, it was a one-on-one intimacy with your professors mm-hmm. that you, you rarely get. This was before also international relations was that fashionable of a field. So I had a degree of direct contact with my professors uh, in studying basically uh, diplomatic history, beginning with the Congress of Vienna, going roughly then, you know, almost two centuries uh, I, was, I was an extraordinarily lucky camper, and I, I made a rule for myself. I said, when it's nice out at Oxford, I'm going to take advantage of it. But when it rains, I'm going to study. That's great. I got a lot of studying in. Uh, then what, made, what was your uh, path then from England back to the Foreign Service? Well, I never was in the Foreign Service. What I've had is a career in and out of government. I went from uh, 
Oxford. I then spent the, basically an internship and then a year working on the Hill for a Democratic senator, Claiborne Pell. Yep, Rhode Island. Rhode Island. And I was his person for foreign relations, and that gave me a taste of Washington. My first summer was the summer of 74, which was the Nixon impeachment, the crisis in Cyprus. It was just a great exposure to Washington, and I was a little bit hooked. I went back to Oxford, finished up there. I then did my postdoc, essentially, at the Institute for Strategic Studies in London and did a lot of work. And once when I was speaking at a conference, a couple of people were there from the Pentagon, from Harold Brown's Pentagon, and they said, hey, would you like to come back and get some more Washington experience with us? So I said, sure. And I went off and I worked in the Pentagon for basically the last year and a half of Carter and got heavily involved with what became the Rapid Deployment Force, which led RDF, to sure. Central Command and all of that. And it was there at the time of the Russian and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the hostage taking in Iran. So I, my timing was really uh, good. What was, your, what was your personal experience with Desert One and understanding the mission and what happened? And, you know, I now come to know you over the last... Uh, 45 minutes, I understand. Susan uh, was building Nightline at the time. Nightline was covering that voraciously. We're just talking to Bob Barnett and Rita Braver about sort of a Chinese wall that you have at home, but she's covering the hostage crisis. You're in Brown's Defense Department. You're sending C-141s into a desert landing spot to rendezvous with helicopters. It's It's a disaster. Where are you in all this? Well, I didn't know her yet, so that took care of the... Uh, we didn't need a Chinese wall or any other kind of wall. Uh, we hadn't met, so that made that easy. Do uh, so I was at... Well, actually, we won't go there. We'll, see, we'll get with who I say. I did do a study at the time for Harold Brown on American special forces capability worldwide, so I knew a lot about it. I knew all the guys involved in the planning of Desert One. I was not personally involved in the planning of, of Desert One. It was very tightly held and I wasn't senior enough, but I I intimately knew those issues uh, simply because of the global review that I had been been conducting. Um, And then in the 80s, you move over to state. Yeah, during the transition, I moved over to Ronald Reagan State Department, worked under Haig for 18 months, then Schultz for three years, first in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs, doing a little bit of everything. Then for three years on European, and that became European and Canadian Affairs. And my largest role there was overseeing Greece, Turkey, and Cyprus. And also I undertook my first real diplomatic missions. I became the U.S. envoy to the Cyprus negotiations and spent a lot of my time shuttling around Nicosia, Athens, and Ankara, unsuccessfully trying to broker. And what I took from that affected my thinking really ever since, which is often the least significant part of any dispute is the the disagreement on the issues. What you really need are leaders on the various sides who who check two boxes. They've got to be willing to compromise, and they've got to be politically strong enough to, to make the compromises and then to sell them to their own domestic political constituencies. I ended up writing a book about it, about, and I developed this theory of ripeness. And I basically said for any dispute to be ripe, you had to have, among other things, not just the es- essence or the elements of a compromise and a process people would buy into, but more than anything else, it depends upon leaders who are willing and able to make deals and sell deals. And if you look at all the other conflicts that have either been solved or not, and I was lucky enough to be involved one, su- one successful years later in the Northern Ireland one, sure. and I've been involved in any number of unsuccessful uh, ones. That, to me, is the most useful analytical framework anyone can begin with. So just as a little sidebar here, if you think of maybe Sadat and Rabin as two people who would rise to that level of leadership and, and ability to make a deal, perhaps. Well, but, but Rabin, when he was, say, prime minister of Israel, finally, 
uh, his problem was he didn't have anybody on the other side. Right. Uh, so those are two different generations, Sadat and Rabin. Right, because you had Sadat had Begin, who, yeah. who could make the deal. Rabin had Arafat. And because uh, the center by then, the focus had shifted to the Palestinians, and Arafat was never able to turn that corner. Lots, there's been lots of interest, obviously, in Nelson Mandela uh, recently. Yeah. It was Nelson Mandela's good luck that when he was willing, and he had come to the scene, and he was willing, if you will, not to, not to practice any revenge, was willing to be incredibly generous and gracious and wise. He had an FW de Klerk, someone on the Afrikaner side, who was willing to give up power and to argue to his own people this was not a time, if you will, to launch a civil war. So what you realize is that in order for things to work out, you need people on both sides. Uh, it takes two people, quite literally, to, to make peace. And in Greece, Turkey, and Cyprus, you never had it. In Northern Ireland, finally, uh, you did. In the Middle East, you, 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 you haven't had it. In India, Pakistan, you have it. It turns out, sadly enough, it's the exception in most instances that you have leaders who are both willing and able to, to, to do it. I don't want to leave the 80s, Richard Haas, without, uh, and the State Department without pausing at least for a second about the conceit of this show, which is the optics of politics. And uh, so I've made a study in my entire life of what I did in the Clinton years, what Deaver did in the Reagan years. And so we go to 1985 and his trip to Germany with uh, Chancellor Kohl uh, and the controversy around the visit to the Bitburg Cemetery. Uh, this might you know, bring back some difficult <laughs> memories for you, it but, does. but tell me about that and your reflections on that. No, I remember because I was in the European Bureau. At Rick Burt was the assistant secretary uh, at the time. I was, you know, fortunately, I would say, not responsible for that one little uh, piece of it. That, that was so interesting, though. It was one of those where I think people were just somewhat caught, caught out and a little bit by surprise. Like, you, you work issues inside the bubble of governance, and then it gets put out under the full light of exposure and media and public uh, opinion, and suddenly issues sometimes just morph or take off, I'm not sure what, what image to use, in ways you just hadn't quite anticipated. So often it's not that you ignored an issue, it's just that you didn't place the, uh, or bring to it the sensitivity or sensibility that it turns out you, you should have. Yeah, none of us reads things 2020. And there you just had a situation where people didn't read it right and underestimated still the, the sensitivities and just basically and just got it wrong. During the 90s, uh, now that we have 20 years to reflect, uh, we're, we're, we keep passing sort of 20-year milestones of different things that I, I did in the White House with Clinton, but what kind of a foreign policy president will Clinton be seen uh, as 10 years from now? I don't think he'll be largely seen as a foreign policy president. I think Bill Clinton will be seen as a good president largely because of his domestic policy. And, and you look at the job creation and the economic growth, the fact that he left the budget in surplus. That will be Clinton's claim on, on history, that he was one of the more successful domestic presidents uh, we ever had, the, uh, you know, the, workfare, you know, the welfare reforms and so forth. On foreign policy, he won't be seen as a major president. He would say probably, I would bet, because he didn't have a major crisis. His big foreign policy issues were those of humanitarian intervention, and in some ways uh, that he introduced, if you will, some of that debate to American foreign policy. But uh, I really think his, his stake to his position in history will be, will be almost, not entirely, but largely based upon his domestic uh, economic accomplishment. And yet his bearing as president, we were talking a little bit about Northern Ireland before, and certainly his visit to Belfast was a, a major uh, uh, opening at that point. Uh, so difficult for Bush 43 to uh, be a uh, 
president on the world stage because he's a president at war. He's not a popular president uh, internationally. President Obama, as we speak, is in Africa uh, against the backdrop of, of Nelson Mandela's uh, last days, perhaps. Uh, but you have to look back at Clinton as a person who, when he got on Air Force One and it landed in another place, Clinton brought a lot of joy to the places he visited. Oh, Bill Clinton was in some ways the greatest politician of our time. You know, some politicians can do the outside game, what I would call wholesale. They can give the big speeches and all that. Obama obviously has that gift. Other politicians aren't great at that, but they can do the inside game. Uh, Johnson was clearly the master of the inside game. Bill Clinton was one of the few people in modern memory who could do both. He could do it wholesale. He could do it retail. He could do big rooms. He could do small rooms. Uh, he could do it public. He could do it private. He had a range and a depth of political gifts that is, uh, that is rare. Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of Foreign Policy Begins at Home. What's happening at CFR now, and uh, what are the things we should be looking for? Part of it, consistent with my book, is a much greater emphasis on things, quote-unquote, domestic. So we've got people working on this set of issues that, how would I put it, your daddy's grand council on foreign relations never would have uh, looked at. There's also a much broader range of international issues, things like public health, not just simply infectious disease, but one of our big growth areas is looking at so-called non-communicable diseases, which increasingly drive health care costs around the world, diabetes, uh, cancers, the results of alcoholism, Alzheimer's, what, what have you. A lot more work on technology and its consequences. For example, uh, nuclear weapons 70 years ago were the new technology and that stimulated all sorts of responses, which ultimately became the whole network of arms control arrangements. Well, now we've got new technologies, whether it's things in cyber or potentially geoengineering to affect our environment. And what we don't have are the rules or arrangements or institutions to deal with these new technologies. I want us to spend a lot more time thinking about how is it we, we manage these emerging technologies and hopefully channel the good parts of them and we discourage the uh, bad parts. Also, like any institution, we're thinking hard uh, about new technologies ourselves, about how we take advantage of them to reach a much broader uh, public. Uh, so how do you use the internet, whether it's blogs or mobile devices? I mean, like everybody else, we've got to think about that. One other big thing. Look, we're 90-something years old. We're, you know, we represent the establishment. We publish foreign affairs. Uh, the elites are part of the Council on Foreign Relations. That still, though, leaves out 315 million Americans. So one of the biggest investments we're starting to make is how do we meet people, how do we get our information, our content, uh, our analysis to people who aren't going to be members of the Council on Foreign Relations. We've only got a few thousand of those who may not even read foreign affairs. We have less than 200,000 uh, copies of those sold every issue. So how do we reach them? And what we're focusing now is on high school students, college students, their teachers. We're focusing on the people who deliver sermons in churches and synagogues and mosques. We're focusing also on state and local and community leaders. What we're trying to do is create a whole new set of partnerships and relationships. And we're producing, uh, say, curriculum materials for students so they can uh, learn more about the world, because this is often getting cut out in this age of STEM and everything else. We're often ignoring what we used to call civics. We're certainly ignoring history and global uh, social studies. We're, we're, we're trying to do more for teacher training. Essentially, what we're, what we're, as an organization, trying to do is continue to do the stuff we've done historically. You know, we're a legacy institution, and, and we feel that responsibility. But we're, so we're trying to do that well 
do absorb the new technologies, cover the new issues, but we're also trying to do, do some new things and try to bring a much larger swath of Americans into the foreign policy debate. So as you write in the New York Times, <clears throat> there is a respite, uh, despite the fact that there's a 29-year-old kid at Sherman Tovo Airport, uh, despite the fact that we have Syria going on, that McCain might want us to, to get more involved than perhaps you might want to. But if we had to be concerned about a couple things on the foreign policy front, what would they be? Overseas, I would say I, I worry about Pakistan. Think about how much time we, we debate about North Korea, which has a half dozen or so nuclear weapons, or Iran, which wants to have one or a few. Well, Pakistan has well over 100. It's the fastest growing nuclear arsenal in the world, and it's a, it's a country that's not working. It's over 200 million people now. It doesn't have, there's no sense of political legitimacy, much less stability in the country. So if there's a foreign policy concern to keep you up at night, I would say that. Secondly, Asia. Asia. Look, Asia has been blessed in an almost ahistorical way now for several decades where the economic dynamics have been fantastic. And we haven't read a lot about political military competition. Well, that era is coming to an end. The tectonic plates of Asia are beginning to move. And the question is, can we, we'll be able to manage it. Because you don't have the networks there, uh, political, military, diplomatic networks. You got this rise of nationalism. You got all this history, all this emotional baggage, in many cases predating World War II. You've had nothing like, say, the Franco-German reconciliation that's been the centerpiece of Europe. Nothing like that between Japan and China. I was just in China last week. Chinese were not complaining about the American pivot to Asia. What they were saying is, what are you Americans going to do to help manage Japan's uh, nationalism and, and the problem that they are posing? So I, I get the sense that history is returning to Asia. And this is where the great powers are. You know, we're spending a lot of time still debating what it is we shouldn't do, shouldn't do in the Middle East. And that's serious. I understand that. I'm not saying we can or should ignore it. But I really do think a lot more of the 21st century is going to be determined by what happens in Asia than by what happens in the Middle East. And then again, I come back to the theme of the book. I really think the biggest national security challenge is the domestic. If we get our economy growing, if we get our society uh, working together, if we continue to innovate, if what's happened, say, in the energy sector is replicated in other uh, sectors, we will have an example the rest of the world will want to follow. We will have the resources we need in order to act and lead in the world. If we do not get things right, if our economic growth doesn't go, if uh, we're not competitive, we're not going to be able to set an example anyone will want to follow. Even more important, we're not going to have the resources we need. And if, we're not, if we don't have the resources we need, not only will we not be able to act and lead in the world, Americans are going to turn inward. Uh, we're going to get more parochial. What's happening in Europe is, to me, a dangerous example of what could happen uh, here if we have prolonged periods of, of low or, 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 or no growth. So I think the stakes are enormous. And I keep coming back to the argument that there's no alternative to us. I don't say this out of arrogance. I don't say this out of conceit. But no other country out there has the capacity or the outlook or the habits or the inclination to act in a leadership position, to lead the world. It's not China. It's not Japan. It's certainly not Europe. It's not India. It's not Brazil. It's not anybody. And the world just won't lead itself. The world is not some self-regulating uh, mechanism or organism. It's, it's certainly not going to be uh, the UN General Assembly. It's not going to be the UN Security Council. We have got to do it, not by ourselves. We need partners, but we have got to lead. So that's why we've got to get our house in order at home so at least we have that, that capacity and we have that potential. So the, the stakes, uh, I actually think, are, are, are enormous. 
Foreign Policy Begins at Home, Richard Haas, the author and president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks for spending at least a, a couple of minutes in the beautiful uh, Aspen Highlands and uh, talking about this stuff. Thanks for having me. That's it for our first show from the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. We'll return to the studio next week for a very special hour with my oldest friend and author of the top of the buzz chart book, This Town. Yes, Mark Leibovich will be back for his third and no doubt biggest appearance on the program. Mm-hmm.